I'm Terry White. I'm a journalist and author, and this is the first episode of Why Didn't You? A podcast telling the real stories of survivors. Now I'm recording this on Sunday the 24th of September. And it's the end of a pretty dreadful week to be a woman and definitely the end of a pretty dreadful week to be a survivor. Now, this podcast is not about the allegations that were reported last weekend by the Sunday Times, the Times and Dispatchers. But this podcast is about the public response to both the women making those claims and to the scores of women who when telling their you know entirely unconnected stories publicly the response that they faced as well it was genuinely shocking I'm not shocked by much I don't think um upsetting infuriating even and perhaps you know especially when it was just those three words you know just a question right why didn't you why didn't you scream report to the police physically fight leave him dress differently have proof see a doctor stay sober cooperate with the prosecution i could spend the next two hours just reading the variations on those questions but the key word in all of it really is why didn't you and we all know the silencing and the shame that sits within that question and that word and it isn't just an online problem I think sometimes we might tell ourselves that you know some dickhead troll with a load of numbers in his name But rape myths, which is what these are, are everywhere. And they're not just believed or spread by the most hardcore. We are talking in lots of instances about men and women we work with, we maybe date, call our friends, maybe they're in our family, we walk past them in the street. They're also the people who can end up working in the police and sitting on juries being part of a justice system that we know statistically is not delivering for survivors so I wanted to create a space for women to tell their stories where it wasn't chaotic and mad and combative where their voice is the one that's prioritised to tell the truth about sexual assault in 2023. Their truth. So we'll hear one survivor's story a week and they may well be difficult to listen to and I kind of, I know what I'm asking of you to listen to this every week. But every story will be different and every story deserves to be heard and this podcast should be a place where women can be candid and honest in a way that we still find difficult they don't have to sanitize their story or present themselves as palatable and easy and nice shave off the edges they can be angry upset they can be funny they can be joyful you know 
almost like we're talking about real human women, which we are. And some will be identified, some anonymous, some with convictions, many not. There will be no requirement on what you have to be and what you have to have to be able to share your story. There is no such thing as a perfect victim. There is only a survivor and her story. So I start this by telling you that I'm a survivor. I've been assaulted three times. I've reported two of them. I have one conviction and I'm currently awaiting a CPS charging decision on the other one. That's my story. Our very first guest is Ellie Wilson from Scotland and this is hers. Thank you for joining us on this very first episode of Why Didn't You? I'm so thrilled to have you. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. We both sounded like we were taking the mickey out of each other then. Do you know, know what I mean? <laughs> so you're here. <laughs> but we are. We're a huge um, supporter of all of the incredible work that you do. And we're so grateful that you could join us today because you are um, brilliantly eloquent and challenging and uncompromising on some of the stuff around rape culture that we're seeing that you faced over the last few years. And we'll get into the specifics of your story and and what you've kind of survived and and where you are now and lots of other stuff. But I want to start, I suppose, by talking about when you first came to most people's attention. And I remember seeing this tweet that went out on Twitter or X, the most evil place on the internet, as I now like to call it. And you wrote a tweet, and it was January of this year, and it was... I'm going to read your tweet, if you don't mind, um, because I think it was incredibly powerful. The first of many um, really powerful tweets, actually. If you don't follow Ellie, I really encourage you to, especially if you have an interest in um, surviving sexual assault and all of the issues around it so january of this year and ellie tweeted in the early hours of new year's day 2018 i was raped while unconscious by someone i trusted this was the beginning of a cycle of abuse that lasted years his friends and family knew but said no one would believe me they were wrong He spent New Year's Day 2023 behind bars. And there's there's a real simplicity kind of to what you were saying, but you also, I mean, there's so much in there about the kind of things we hear as victims and survivors every day. Can you talk a little bit, I suppose, about why those words in particular but also why Twitter and why that day? 
Yeah, I think for me, that was the first New Year's that I'd had since the case had all been put to rest. Um, Obviously, you know, in the years preceding that New Year had always been a difficult time because, you know, it was the anniversary that I'd been raped um, for the first time. Um, And, you know, I think New Year is symbolic for everyone, right? It's like a fresh start. I was really reflecting. At that time of year, I was like, okay, this is this is the start of my new life. Um, he's now in prison. I was believed. All of the lies that I was told weren't true. Um, I wanted to share that story. Um, I think that a lot of survivors of sexual offences um, carry a lot of shame. And I hadn't really spoken that much about the specifics of what had happened to me until that point. But I thought, you know, I'm free now. Um, Why not share what happened to me? And I suppose my story, there's kind of two sides of it. One side is, I guess, the brutality and the tragedy of what happened to me. Like, we, I can't shy away from the fact that what happened to me was awful. It was a, it was a disgusting act. It was a despicable act. But at the same time, I suppose I've sort of, triumphed as well and so I wanted to show both sides of that did you have was there a minute where you were waiting or about to press send and you were like holy shit this could go mad honestly no I had absolutely no idea I I tweeted I'd actually I'd just come back from a trip I'd been in Riga in Latvia actually for New Year's I come back from the trip and I'd you know stuck this tweet up tweet up fallen asleep and then the next morning, I was like, what the hell has happened? Um, I had like, I think before I posted that tweet, I had about 600 followers. Um, I've now got 17 and a half thousand. Um, that tweet saw well over, had well over a million views. I gained about 5,000 followers overnight. Um, it was crazy um, because I'd, I'd actually been, I'd been trying to speak out and make change in in areas of, you know, violence against women before then, but it felt kind of like I was shouting and no one was hearing. That's the positive of social media, right, is you can easily reach a lot of people. And all of a sudden I had this platform and I was able to connect with other people and it made me feel so much less alone because I felt so isolated and I think that that's a common experience um abuse like that sexual abuse is isolating it makes you feel alone it makes you feel like no one could possibly understand what you're going through I wasn't alone anymore I had an entire community and I had people not just reaching out to me, but reaching out to other people who they'd met through the comment section of my tweet. And that was, I think that that tweet was honestly life-changing for me. Within that beautiful support, was there kind of a, a small minority of difficult or aggressive or, you know, just bang out of order tweets and if so how did they make you feel yeah it was an odd one because uh, prior to posting that tweet I'd never had any sort of negative comments before on my twitter I hadn't really dealt with online hate much 
I actually, I really, I remember clearly the first sort of hate tweet that I got. I think I remember, I remember it so clearly because, you know, it was the first one. I hadn't really had this before. And it was someone saying that I have a perpetual victim narrative. Um, and I blocked the account straight away. Um, I think there was only a few from, from that first tweet. And then, you know, I kept, I kept speaking out. I kept, um, you know, making more posts on my social media, doing interviews. And it began to snowball. I think at, at first I was like, oh, they'll just be an odd troll here and there. And, you know, their comments won't get any likes and you block them. And, and it, it won't be that big a deal. Um, but then as time progressed, um, I, had, I had no idea that this would happen. I had no idea that there were a significant number of people online that would devote their lives to making fun of rape victims. I had no idea that that was a thing that could happen. But do you think it's bigger than a, you know, marginal group of trolls who are, you know, dangerous individuals who sit outside of the edges? Or do you think this is a reality of a a scale of quote unquote normal people that we hadn't really identified before. Yeah, I think it is a larger scale problem. And look, there's gonna be a mix of people, these people that are saying these awful things online. Some of them will just be trolls who like causing arguments that like controversy. Um there are some that will be like your more classic I guess, incel, sort of extremist type. And there's some that will be ordinary blokes. And I think that we're kind of living in a moment and, you know, people are referring to it as sort of a post-Me Too backlash. Look, we can't shy away from the fact that we live in a misogynistic society, right? The world that we live in is misogynistic. It's sexist. That's a fact. But I think that the rise of high profile misogynistic influencers like Andrew Tate is sort of um putting an air of acceptability onto these sorts of opinions. So I think people are becoming more emboldened to express these sorts of ideas. And there's this whole thread now um that men are actually the ones that are oppressed. And we're seeing quite you know, respected figures, politicians even, saying that actually men are the people that are really oppressed. And there's this whole male victimhood narrative. So I think that what we're seeing online, all of this anti-woman rhetoric online, is actually just symptomatic of a broader issue. What I really want to get into is it's exactly what we're talking about, which is how does that misogyny express itself at the moment and specifically around survivors of sexual violence? You faced very specific kind of rape myths, which are essentially victim blaming um, and expectations of how quote unquote real victims would behave. It's essentially used as proof to undermine credibility, to undermine the sense that you're telling the truth. Um, 
So I want to talk about some of those. And let's start with the rape myth that women are who are raped will and should always report immediately to the police after the very first time they were attacked. And how this expresses itself is, you know, and this the reason this podcast is called Why Didn't You is I was struck by how many people online were directly contacting women saying, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you call the police? Why didn't you not get so drunk? And and all of it was was put on women as their responsibility and the personal failings of theirs and in this case it was very much you know there's a sense of well why didn't you go to police the first time why didn't you stop him from doing it again and there's some relevance for this in in your story and actually in in pretty much all cases of domestic and intimate partner violence let's talk a little bit about what happened to you and what you've lived with and, and survived over the last few years. So you met Daniel McFarlane, your rapist, and you were friends initially, right? Like, I think you said he was your best friend. Yeah, yeah, he was my best friend. Um, I was really into athletics at uni. I was a sprinter and I met him and he was, he did the decathlon. He was a very, very good athlete. Um, and uh, at that time, the time that we met, my coach had decided he didn't want to coach me anymore. So I didn't have a coach and I was devastated because athletics was like the most important thing in my life. I loved that sport and nothing felt better to me than just like getting on the track and running as fast as I can. I just felt unstoppable. So I loved that sport so much. Um, and he was a great athlete um, and he said it's fine we can train together I'll coach you um and so we spent so much time together training and obviously you know you've we're we're talking about rape myths and there's that question but why didn't you why didn't you report immediately I wasn't I didn't even really know that I had been raped until you know the first time it happened on that new year's um until about six months later I was what 20 I was 20 I wasn't even 21 I was 20 um I'd gone out on New Year's Eve with my friends was at uni and like most 20 year olds I had too much to drink um and that's I think I'm sure anyone that's ever been young can relate to that um and I don't know I don't all all I know is that he took me home supposedly looking after me I passed out I woke up the next morning and I felt like something really bad had happened I just had a feeling but he was my best friend I didn't even want to I didn't even want to think the thought I didn't want to even entertain it because if I even had to think about it if I sort of willed it into existence by thinking about it then I would have to act. I And I didn't want to lose him as a friend because at that point I felt like he was the only person that I had in my life. And so I never, I never asked. But it just, you know what, when I, when I first read about this, I can just remember thinking like, how would you, that feels like a huge leap to make, doesn't it? Because he was yeah. your best friend in the betrayal. And I know you weren't 
in a relation, a romantic relationship at that point. And I remember thinking, that is such a fundamental betrayal. Yeah. Your male best friend, who you will have trusted to get you home safely, the the mental and emotional leap you have to make to say that person that I trusted with everything was the person who betrayed me the most in the most horrendous way and you know I'm sure if you had have said something at that point it would have been like you're crazy what you took who would think something like that that just seems mad but do you feel like you knew as you say there was disbelief that it had happened and for so many reasons but were you stuck from that day with kind of a, a feeling in the pit of your belly that that you know something had happened but you just couldn't let it surface because of the consequences and because the as I say the the the, the I don't even know how you get there from where you were yeah completely I mean I just I remember that New Year's Day so clearly I just felt I felt sick I just felt this complete sense of unease I feel like I had a little conversation with myself and I was like look we just have to pretend we can't think about this we can't question it you just have to try and move on because I you know it was a point in my life where I was struggling with my mental health like I said um I felt really dependent on this person um in so many ways and so yeah I just I just did my best to push it out of my mind um and you know we did end up dating and then it happened again um and it's at that point that I obviously couldn't push it out of my mind and we spoke about it and he's, you know, he admitted he's a rapist. Um, and then later on, he confessed to me that he had, in fact, raped me on that New Year's Eve. And and that kind of takes us to the the second myth I want to talk about, which is, and I know this is something you feel really strongly about, which is rape within a relationship you know and there's all these all these simple questions and I think I said this to earlier my favorite thing is hey I'm just asking a question slash accusing you of lying or undermining you or humiliating you um and it's you know well why didn't you end the relationship why didn't you stop loving him why didn't you just cut him out of your life why didn't you actually do you know what why didn't you protect him he was your boyfriend you owed him something was do you think that relationship because I was thinking about if I was in your position I'd have been relieved to be in a relationship with just bear with me because this sounds mad but I'd have been relieved to be in a relationship with him because I'd have thought well now it's fine because now we we do have sex with each other as part of a relationship and almost that normalized if the worst did happen then is it so bad if I'm now in a relationship do you see what I mean like part of me to be able to rationalize what had happened or what I feared had happened yeah you know I think that 
part of me wanted, I thought that if I could make everything better and we could have our happy ending, and I had this clear idea of what what it would look like, what our lives could look like if, you know, the abuse just stopped. And obviously it was a picture that he'd also, you know, put in my head, this idyllic picture of what our lives could be like. Then, you know, that would cancel out all of the harm that had been caused to me. Um, and I think that once you're that deep in and you've been your sense of self and your sense of reality has been broken down so much, all you want is for the pain to stop. All you want is for the abuse to stop. Um, and you hold on to these delusions because they are delusions. You know, we were never going to have a happy ending because he he was a rapist. He was an abuser. Um, but you hold on to that just because you want you want to feel okay again. And that second attack, which I know was in, was just brutal and devastating, but it must have been also devastating in the fact that it confirmed your suspicions about what had already happened. And did it in many respects force you to have to not, if not even directly confront at that point, admit to yourself that he was capable of sexual violence and that there was every chance he'd done it to you before. Yeah. I mean, there was no, there was no escaping it at that point. Um, The second attack, you know, I was conscious and aware during, and it was an attack by force. Um, I was unwell at the time. Um, He knew there was no way that I was consenting to sex yet. He forced it on me anyway. Um, And I was crying. Um, you know, I was in pain. These are things that he, you know, had admitted in court. He's admitted that I was crying. Um, but somehow it's, it's, you know, he's still denying that it's rape. Uh, he knew I was angry at him as well. He texted me afterwards saying, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Ellie, you tried to say no. We went through a period, you know, where he knew I was angry at him. Um, and he said, that he um, wanted to kill himself as a result of the guilt for what he'd done. And that sort of put me in a position where I felt like I had to look after him. And so I, I, I look back now and I see a lot of these situations clearly for what they were, which was just, you know, emotional manipulation and blackmail. Um, you know, regardless of how much this person hurt me, I I loved him and I cared about him. And when he threatened to harm himself, obviously my anger or upset always just went out the window and I was more just focused on him being okay. This is what I find particularly frustrating about um, how people frame rape within a relationship. There's a guy on social media the other day saying, you know, how dare women frame a boyfriend forcing you to have sex with a man walking down an alley because they're the only two choices by the way for women who are sexually assaulted are it's a man down an alley or it's the man you share a bed with and this kind of sense of there being a value system which is that one is worse than that one and to me it's it's I mean the head fuck nature of it the emotional abuse never mind the physical and sexual brutality which is if you, ex- and, and this is, again, isn't me putting more value on anything, but 
there is meant to be a safety at home, a safety within the person you are in a relationship with. But if that person is the person torturing you, but you do love them because that's the you're in a relationship with them. The complexities within intimate partner violence, the person you trust, who you desperately probably want to trust again and want to believe isn't really that person who is capable, I'm sure, at points of showing you something approaching love, is also the person who's hurting you most in the world. The manipulation, the gaslighting, the what that does to you emotionally, what that does to your sense of how much you can trust and believe in your own feelings, how much I, I, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that is. Why do you think people sh- struggle to understand how complex that is, or some people do, and, and why do they need to lessen it? You know, I think a lot of it just it comes down to sexual entitlement. I think a lot of men in particular think that they have a right to their partner's body, regardless of whether their partner is consenting or not. Um, you know, as as you said, there's no sort of hierarchy of sexual violence. Each sort of different form carries its own unique challenges and pain. Um, but I think that you know, say if you've been raped by a stranger in that, you know, dark alleyway, as is the classic example, then um, I'm sure, you know, you have fears about going out in public, um, interacting with new people. Um, if you've been raped by your partner, you're scared in your own home. Um, you're scared around the people that you love the most. thing about rape in a relationship is it is that violation is being perpetrated by the person that you love and you think loves you and that you're supposed to trust. It's the violation of trust um, that is so painful. And we know statistically as well that you're most likely to be raped by someone you know, whether that's a friend, a partner or a family member. Um, Statistically, that is uh, what makes up the bulk of rape cases. And I've actually seen people online saying um, they've misconstrued the law and they think that actually rape within a relationship carries a lesser penalty. Um, That's not true. And in fact, depending on the circumstances, the sentence can actually be increased um, if it's committed against a partner or ex-partner. When it came to your case being in court, I know there was certainly a sense of his advocate, um, who obviously was was there to present his defence, presenting this as a difficult young relationship and that his main crime, or at least one of his crimes that led to him being in you know the dock essentially was that he was in love with you and that you were in this passionate relationship and he was inexperienced and and all of this obviously you you've experienced a lot now and and you know a huge amount about this but was the translation into its use within the trial and within 
your questioning and within the defense of your rapist. Did that shock and surprise you at the time? It completely surprised me. You know, I went into court um, assuming that the questioning would focus on the facts of the case. I think I thought it would be more like, you know, where were you standing here? Um, X, you know, how did X, Y, Z occur? And, you know, I expected there to be, you know, those really awkward questions about the mechanics of it. But but that kind of made sense in my head because it would be about the facts and we'd go over various facts and, and get like a clear picture um, of the evidence. But that didn't actually really happen. Um, and I was so surprised in court to be um, asked all sorts of bizarre things, you know, like what, what do I normally wear to bed? Do I normally wear pajamas? Do I wear brown pants? Or do I sleep naked? All of these, you know, weird, weird questions. Um, and then all of these random men that were being brought up in the trial. You know, there's this guy, his name was mentioned. And he was some guy that, you know, I'd maybe spoken to twice in passing. No romantic connection. If Even if I did have a romantic connection, it wouldn't have been relevant, but I had no romantic connection to literally, you know, picked up some bloke off the street and is asking me questions about him. And I was like, I don't see the relevancy of this question. And um, I've looked over, you know, my court transcript and I can see the conversations that happened when I was outside the room. And I can see even the judge asking the defense lawyer saying, um, it's not up to the, the witness shouldn't have to intervene to ask what the relevancy of the question is. Um, I just found it completely and utterly bizarre, the things that were being asked. You know, I was accused of having narcissistic personality disorder. I have no medical diagnosis of that whatsoever. Um, there's no legal basis to ask me questions like that. I think the thing that I found really difficult was, so my cross-examination started on a Thursday. So I was um, questioned on Thursday, Friday, and then we had the weekend before the rest of the trial took place. That weekend for me was probably one of the most difficult of my life because I had spent a lot of the cross-examination, not just, you know, having my character completely assassinated, but also being repeatedly told how much he loved me and how I was the one that had the power in this relationship. And I just, I lay in my bed that whole weekend and I was like, have I done the wrong thing? Have, you know, maybe he does love me and maybe I have gotten confused and maybe I've done the wrong thing. And I think that one of the reasons I found the trial to be so dramatic and find my cross-examination to be so dramatic, I was put right back into the um, headspace that I was in when I was in that abusive relationship. And to be told, you know, oh, you, you know, you were in control. He just loved you. It was absolutely soul destroying. And do you think the the effort was to frame it as not a real rape? It was a product of young, overzealous puppy love, where he somehow kind of couldn't control himself because he was so bewitched by you. One hundred percent. And, um, you know, my rapist was found guilty um, and I decided to turn up to sentencing. And I sat there at sentencing again, perhaps naively expecting the sentencing to just be a procedural event, just, you know, running through the 
the basics and then delivering the sentence. Um, but instead, we got a 20 minute long speech from the defense about how um, it was an injustice that I had gone on to graduate with a first class honors degree, a master's of distinction, and gone on to work in my chosen career field while he was going to prison and would never become a doctor because, you know, he was a medical student. Um, I was told that this case should never have come before the high court. It never should have gone this far. All this was was simply a boy falling in love with the wrong girl. Okay. Um... That's exactly how it was framed. And I was also told um, that we were like chalk and cheese, the implication being that I was a slut. And so, therefore, you know, none of this counts. And bear in mind, this is after he has been found guilty. I'm hearing that, you know, after he's been found guilty in a court of law. You know, it it goes right to the heart of the justice system. And I couldn't say anything as well. Couldn't say anything, you know. I was being attacked. This man's turning around, looking at me, pointing me out, attacking me. Can't I can't say anything. My friend shook his head and um, they threatened to throw my friend out of court just for shaking his head. It was like nothing I could have ever expected. And, you know, those, what about what you lost? Because I know you attempted suicide at one point and spent a week in hospital I think it was and you were very profoundly unwell you I think it took you another year didn't it to get through universe I mean it's just loss after loss for you and 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 as we know this is not uncommon for women who lose jobs and lose opportunities lose their mental health lose their sanity lose friends, lose family, lose money, lose... I mean, it's it's never-ending. One of the... Mo- I mean, there's a lot that I find shocking about what's happened to you. And sometimes I think you're going to have to stop fucking feeling shocked. But there is still the prevailing myth, and this is the big one that I saw this weekend, which is people were confidently proclaiming well, have you got proof? And if you've got proof, then it's fine because he'll be found guilty. If you haven't got any proof, then he's not guilty and he'll be found innocent. Um, obviously, one of the biggest challenges around sexual violence is that most men don't rape women in public. They don't rape women where there are cameras. It often is in the privacy of their own home, their own bedroom. Things that constitute proof often still aren't enough to get you across the line. And and you had some of the most direct, strongest direct evidence that, you know, I think most rape victims and survivors would never be able to get that level of proof. And yet, and as you say, he was found guilty on two counts of rape, but it still wasn't unanimous, which I find astonishing. So as you said earlier, there were texts that he sent where he admitted explicitly what he'd done. But you also, and this was kind of the really key bit of evidence, was a confession he gave directly to you during a conversation and you recorded that confession and 
it was used as evidence. He never uh, denied that was him, but he claimed, I believe, that it was a false confession that he made about himself. And you have to say, <laughs> and you know, before we go any further, we're just going to play a little excerpt from the audio. And just a little warning, it is, there's, there's nothing particularly graphic in it, but it is obviously somebody talking directly about committing the act of rape. Do you not get how awful it makes me feel when you say I haven't raped you, when you have, and Ellie, when you say that I've made up... We've already established that I have. Yeah, well, the people that I need to believe me, believe me. But they're believing a lie. And I'll tell them the truth one day, but not today. Will you tell them the truth about what you've done to me? Maybe. How do you feel about it? I feel good not knowing that I'm in prison. Tell me about recording that confession, because it seems to me an incredibly brave but risky thing to do. And were you aware at that point? Because you were you were still together, I believe, and it was a year, it was a year before you broke up permanently, and you, you've obviously not seen him apart from the court case. But were you even conscious then, whether subconsciously or very consciously, of the fact that one day not too far in the future, you would need proof and that the burden of proof for women who have been victims of sexual assault is and feels impossibly high. Yeah, 100%. So something to note as well is that um, one of the charges that my rapist was found guilty of was attempting to defeat the ends of justice. Now, that was a charge... um, that was due to him basically destroying evidence. So at one point, um, he went on my phone and he deleted all of his messages to me off my phone. Um, so only had messages from him after a certain point. Um, we also had a mutual friend um, who he had confessed to, and he then threatened this mutual friend um, to delete those messages. Um I had I had this the you know this this I still had this screenshot of a message that he'd sent later on um that he didn't you know wasn't able to delete so I had that but I knew that he was capable of destroying evidence you know I I felt I didn't feel safe um with like le- leaving my phone around him because I wouldn't know you know what he'd be going through um but certainly at that stage in the relationship things were very out of hand um over time you know that's that the nature of abuse is it gets worse over over time um and you know as you touched on I attempted suicide and that was because my life was becoming unbearable with him it was awful and I was thinking that I wanted to get this recording I wanted to get more proof for two reasons really one was in case I ever decided that I did want justice for myself it wasn't something that I felt at all capable of at the time but I wanted to know that I had that option if I needed to the other reason was because he was emotionally abusive he was hugely emotionally abusive and I needed that recording for my own sanity because sometimes he'd say I I raped you you know and then other times he would say, you've just imagined it, you're, you're making it up. 
so I needed to hear that and have that peace of mind. It was terrifying. Um, I had my phone in my bag, um, put it on record and, you know, brought up the conversation and I was absolutely terrified that he was going to find my phone. And that day, the day that I made the recording, he had threatened to throw my laptop out the window um, in an unrelated, you know, argument. He said he was going to throw my laptop out the window. Um, and that day he also strangled me um, in, to the point that I lost consciousness. So really I was risking my life to get this bit of evidence. If he had found my phone, there is a chance that he could have killed me. Um, obviously I'm speculating about that but there, but it was potentially risking my life. Interestingly, at the time I had this awful phone and I didn't think that the recording had worked because I couldn't hear anything. Um, and it was only, I, I then got a new phone and, you know, transferred all the data over. I then played it on, you know, my new phone speakers. And I was like, wow. And this was, I only realized this after actually I'd reported to the police. And I was, you know, looking through my phone to see if there's anything else I could give them. Um, and I was like, wow, you can actually you know, that's a full confession. And even though, you know, and it's awful to hear you say you knew how much danger you were in at that moment. And we all know what happens often in those situations where you're either attempting to extricate yourself from that relationship, which which he could have definitely interpreted this as, or where you directly go against them and are threatening to report them or anything like that these are incredibly statistically perilously dangerous points in a relationship for women um but did it give you once you had it and knew you had it did it did it give you a feeling of safety almost knowing you had this actual thing that said what you knew deep down all along but which he was abusing you to believe wasn't true or you'd misinterpreted or you'd caused. And I'm sure there's lots of different variations of, of what he described it as. But did it offer you safety and did it and did it give you a sense of reclaiming your sanity almost and you and some control over a situation which was which unbearable for years obviously there I didn't you know I didn't even realize the recording had worked until I reported to the police which was like a year later but I think that you know once I had reported um you know I had a long wait after I reported to the police um until the case actually went to court and obviously within that time period you deal with a whole range of emotions um and sometimes you you know you have that self-doubt and I think occasionally I still listen to it now um because I need to remind myself that I did the right thing because I've been told repeatedly um that I'd ruined this young man's life and I challenge anyone to listen to that recording and tell me that this is this angelic young boy that he's presenting himself to be I think what's most telling for me in that recording is not actually him confessing to the rape it's him saying the people that need to believe me, believe me. And him and, and me asking, well, how do you feel about it? You're not upset that you've caused me pain. And he says, I feel good that I'm not in prison. I mean, that shows the sort of person that he is. And I think it's helpful for me to remind myself that I'm not dealing with a normal human being. 
No, and I, you know, I've heard it, and I was, I'm, I was so shocked by his calmness and coolness, and how cold he was, and and quite uh, rational about it, not not emotional or upset. And it was quite strategic, and, and and it was it was, and it amazes me that even with that, that people can hear, the narrative is still easier for somebody to believe. The people who it wasn't unanimous with, that they could believe that somehow that wasn't real, or rather than believe their own ears. That's how hard it is to believe women. It's even when there is proof that he isn't the boy, the innocent boy that he's being presented as, and his own words are showing who he is, that it's still easier to believe him at that point than it is to believe you as a woman. It's completely mind-blowing. I mean, the evidence you've had, you know, he's he's confessed in messages, um, not just to me, but to other people. He's told his friends um, and you hear him essentially bragging about getting away with it on an audio recording. And yet, you know, what, there's 15, 15 jurors, not all of those people actually believed me. Or maybe some of them, or maybe they did believe me and they just didn't want to punish this promising, promising young man, right? You can't imagine what they've internalised to, in the face of overwhelming proof, still be unsure or have decided it doesn't rise to, you know, a crime worthy of punishing him almost. Exactly. It's like brainwashing. I mean, the you know, sort of the cognitive dissonance that must be involved in that um to actually have either convinced yourself that actually you know he confessed to rape multiple times bragged about it but actually he didn't really commit it or that he's somehow unworthy of punishment for that like how much do you have to hate women to believe that now the last kind of uh dangerous unhealthy and pernicious myth i want to tackle is around what a survivor or a re- and I keep saying this because I keep seeing this phrase on Twitter and it's driving me fucking potty, which is, well, if you were really raped, then you wouldn't X, Y, and Z. So oh. it's a kind of weird thing. And it seems that this one in particular seems to have really kind of taken off recently. I don't know if it's the rise of social media and, and all of, and especially apps which I suppose prioritise photos or just, I don't know what's going on, but it's all around how a survivor looks and acts and behaves so a sense that you shouldn't dress in a way that's perceived as sexy that you should cover up that you should be ashamed of your body and sexuality especially if you've been assaulted because look what happened is the kind of you know underlying bollocks but then also that you should look sad can you talk a little bit about your attitude to that, to fighting that particular myth, but also the importance of reclaiming your body and your sexuality. First of all, I think it's really important to note that women looking sexy is not what causes rape. Um, And 
you know, the science doesn't even back that up. Come on. Um, there are lots of people that, you know, find me and many other women attractive and don't rape them. Um, you know, it's rapists that cause rape. It's not a woman looking a certain way. It also and- reduces men to to kind of little moles in their penis and their physical urges. Exactly. And also, you know, we know that women of any age can get raped. Tiny children can get raped. Older women can get raped. Men can get raped. Um, so, you know, it's not at all about how you look like. But I do think it's important to um, discuss this because it has been a conscious choice for me to show myself like you said, looking hot as fuck, because I deserve that. I deserve that. And, you know, I think that um, if you read an article about rape and it's not about a specific person or whatever, um, there'll be a stock image at the top and it will usually be, you know, um, shadowy figure looking out window at rain or like crouched on the floor crying. And believe me, I've had... Exactly. Yeah, head, head in hands, you know, the usual. And believe me, I've had those moments. I have. But the reality is, is life doesn't just immediately stop um, after you've been raped. And I see myself 100% as a survivor. Um, I don't shy away from how awful that that act was. But I I feel like, you know, I, I lost um, the early years of my, my, my early 20s to abuse. I'm now in my mid-20s and... I think that I deserve to live a fun life. I deserve to feel confident in myself. I deserve to travel. I deserve to drink champagne. Um, I deserve all of those things. And um, for me, actually, how I how I dress is really sort of symbolic of my own journey here. Um, I'm really into fashion and I feel like I've really found my personal style over the last year. And, you know, when I put on like a gorgeous type fitting black dress, a pair of heels, put my red lippy on, like I feel unstoppable. And I don't see how anyone could look at me and be like, yeah, she hasn't been raped because she looks like that. I mean, it's absolutely nonsensical. And I think a lot of people, they find empowerment or joy or confidence in expressing themselves through their clothing. I don't think that should be off limits for rape, rape victims as well and I've had so many women um get in contact with me and say I love that you show that there is life after rape we're sick of being told that we should just be sad all the time um and you know the, the converse of it is is that actually whenever I do speak about the more difficult aspects you know me struggling with my mental health I always get guys saying oh you'd be happier if you just moved on and stopped talking about it so honestly we can't win um the game is set up against us so I just say do whatever you want do what makes you happy um and ignore the misogynists and their pitiful comments I I also just think I think it is more comfortable for many people to see rape victims as broken victims who will likely never recover from this brutality, that from this expression of male violence. Uh, totally. And, you know, I think a lot of men, almost they see women not being defeated by it as being like a failure of the rape to like correct them or something. 
I think it was interesting during the actual trial before he was found guilty. I was very conscious of what I was wearing. Um, you know, I had all of these mental battles to contend with. I was like, well, I don't want to look sexually appealing because, you know, then I'm asking for it. But I also need, I still need to look pretty because if I'm ugly, then, you know, no one likes that. Um, so I was very careful about what I wore. It didn't really represent, you know, me as a person, my personality. I was just wearing these baggy trousers, baggy shirt, whatever. Um, and then once he was found guilty, I walked into court in like my favorite outfit. I've got these gorgeous knee high heeled boots. Honestly, if you if you don't own a pair of like a nice knee high heeled boot, get 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 some in your wardrobe. Like it'll make you feel unstoppable. Had those on a nice blazer and like a form fitting like tight maxi dress. I felt unstoppable. I walked into court and I just because you know, that that was my opportunity to reclaim my power because I'd won. And this is another thing that makes people really angry is when I talk about winning. You know, it was I I went into court with the mindset of this is going to be a battle. This is the fight of my life. Um and I won and I think that you know consider how rare um it is for women to actually get justice. Um I think that that was something that I deserved to celebrate. I deserved it after everything that I was put through. So yeah, I'm happy that my rapist is in jail. I'm happy that he's having a tough time in jail. I'm happy that he was found guilty. I'm happy he's on the sex offenders register for life. I'm happy all of his appeals have been denied. I'm happy about that and I shouldn't be ashamed about that. Amen, you shouldn't. And we should say he was sentenced to five years, right? But he's going to be up for parole in, was it a year and a half? Yeah, so... So he's eligible for parole halfway through his sentence. So yeah, we're yeah we're looking at yeah just o- just over a year actually. It'll be like Christmas time next year that the, he'll be eligible for you know to be considered for parole, which really doesn't seem long enough. But but again, I found it particularly fascinating how this myth really did find its way into the courtroom. So actually. Um, in, so on the first day of my cross-examination, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. So I was just answering the questions. So it was at the end of the second day, I was like, wait, I see what's happening here. He is crafting a narrative and I haven't had a chance to tell my side of the story. So I began to push back a bit on the questioning and on the second day. Um, I can't remember what it was. He had, he yeah, he said in court that um, I was manipulating him um, in court. He he said, you know, you're you're manip- you're manipulating me, and I said, um, I don't think it's manipulative of me to challenge you on falsehood. And he got so angry, visibly angry. It was brilliant, honestly. Um, but then, you know, in his speech to the jury, he was saying, "You saw how she was with me. Just imagine poor Daniel having to put up with that for two years." And the thing that I found really, really funny was um, so at the time I was working in the Scottish Parliament as a political researcher. And he said to the jury, she's the strong one. Look at her, went on, finished her degree, political researcher or whatever. She's the strong one, which is which is so funny. Um, you know, it's like I was painted out to be the sort of 
femme fatale, um, sort of arch manipulator sort of person. But also, your life hadn't ended, you know, on either of those yeah. occasions that he violently attacked you. Your life didn't stop in that moment and you went on to live a life. Can you tell us what your kind of ultimate aim is with the work you're doing, but also what you think will make a real difference when it comes to the destruction of these myths that so much of rape culture is built on. And I suppose how we can find solidarity and community and potentially even hope in that. Yeah. So for me, you know, once I came out of the court process and, um, you know, everything was wrapped up. I was just, I, I, I was determined that I had to do something to try and make things better for the people that would come after me. Um, it, I was like, it, it cannot continue to be this bad. Um, so there's been a few different things that I've been working on since then. Um, you know, we, we, we spoke about my cross-examination in court and how awful that was. I'm pursuing a complaint against that uh, defence advocate and... You, you know, because I thought that's the right thing to do. You know, I need to stop this happening to other people. Because bear in mind, you know, there are laws that regulate what can and can't be said in court. To make my complaint, I obviously needed to corroborate it. Um, and to corroborate it, I needed my court transcript. What I didn't realise was that I would need to pay over £3,000 to access my court transcript because they're not free. Um, they cost about £100 per hour of court proceeding and that's not including VAT which needs to be added on as well um so I was able to crowdfund the cost of my court transcript and um was working on trying to um implement free court transcripts unfortunately since then um the Scottish government has now committed to a pilot program to introduce uh free court transcripts for uh victims of sexual offences so that was something that I was really proud of to have um you know, help to implement. There's all sorts of proposed legislation changes that are now coming um, in, in Scotland and also in England and Wales um, that should hopefully improve the experience of victims. What I would really like to see is um, victims actually having access to independent legal advice because there's this misconception that um, it's you versus him when it's a rape case and that you have your own lawyer, but you don't have your own lawyer. Um, you don't have access to that at all. And so victims often have no idea what to expect. They have, you know, they don't know what evidence is going to be brought up. Whereas the person that's accused of the crime, they have their own lawyer, they're being informed. So it's completely unbalanced. That's something that I would really like to see. I'm also working um, to improve safeguarding in higher education um, because my rapist, when I reported to the police and he was arrested and charged, um, he was suspended from Glasgow University where we were both studying. But in the interim, while he was awaiting trial for rape, he started studying at Edinburgh University. Um, and I actually got in contact with Edinburgh Uni at the time to say, you know, he's he's been suspended from Glasgow. He's awaiting trial for rape, um, assuming that they didn't know. But it turned out that they did know, um, but they decided to offer him access to the campus anyway. And so I'd been exploring um, safeguarding in higher education around sexual misconduct and found just a complete um, lack of consistency in approach and also found that um, 
applicants to universities don't have to declare any criminal convictions, including for serious offences like rape. So that's something that I'm really, really passionate about changing. And I've lodged a petition with the Scottish Parliament um, to introduce national safeguarding guidance in higher education. So there's a lot that needs to be changed. Essentially, you know, we just need to move towards a system that's more victim centric and frankly just prioritizes the safety of women over the rights of rapists. I mean, that's a very good note to end on. I've just got to say, Ellie, I think you are an incredible woman to take what you experience and some of the injustice you've seen since. You can follow her on social media. Ellie, do you want to sh- share your Twitter and your Instagram? X. I keep calling it Twitter. I'm sorry, I'm never going to call it X. Uh, but my Twitter slash X is um, Ellie OK Wilson. So that's E L L I E O K and then Wilson, W I L S O N. And my Instagram is Ellie Wilson Official. Um, and I also have TikTok as well, which is also Ellie Wilson Official. So um, definitely follow me on those. Thank you for having me on. You're an inspirational woman yourself. I'm sure there's many, many inspirational women who'll be listening to this right now. I just want to say a massive thank you to Ellie for talking to me this week. In many respects, you know, an incredibly difficult week to be having these conversations, but also a really important one I feel so thank you Ellie for telling us your story now every week alongside these testimonies I'm going to share a few statistics and facts and you are probably thinking oh god do I have to sit there and listen to a list of probably quite depressing numbers and yes I'm afraid you do and I do think they matter. We know the role that disinformation plays in this. And so the hope is that these, and they'll be relevant to the story you've just heard, will arm and inform us. So please feel free to use them. So rape complaints in Scotland, where Ellie lives, are at the highest level on record and have increased. So rape, attempted rape, increased by 5% in 2023 from the previous year. Of the 2,176 rapes or attempted rapes reported to police in 2020-21, to only 152 led to a prosecution. In 2021-22, to 51% of rape and attempted rape trials resulted in a conviction. And just for context, it's 91% for crimes overall. These are for Scotland, and now we're going to give a few for England and Wales. One in two rapes against women in England and Wales are carried out by a partner or ex-partner. On average, adult rape cases in England and Wales take more than two years to complete in court. And one in four women have been raped or sexually assaulted as an adult. And global estimates from the World Health Organization put it at one in three who've experienced violence. Those are the facts. And these are the stories that illustrate them. If you need any support after listening to today's episode, please contact Rape Crisis in Scotland on 08088 010302. 
and rape crisis in England and Wales on 0808 500 22. Let me end by saying thank you to you for just listening. You know, someone told me that podcasts are meant to be funny, um, which I'm sure some of them are, but I think they're also meant to be human. And that's hopefully what this podcast is really about. Please do share this podcast. And if you'd like to tell us your story or even just find out a little bit more, email whydidn'tyoupod at gmail.com. I am the only person who has access to that inbox and your story will always be told in a way that protects you. This podcast will keep going as long as there are stories to tell and people like you willing to listen. There will be dreadful weeks, I'm sure, like this one. Maybe easier weeks, but we'll be here for all of them, telling the real stories of survivors. We'll see you next week. <laughs>